Hey everyone, this is Jay. And this is Angie. And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines, a place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two. Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Hey everyone, welcome back for another episode. We actually just finished releasing all of season one, and while we're in the mid-season hiatus right now, we wanted to test out something, what we're calling a community event. A more casual, fireside chat-esque format with some of our friends. In this installment, we'll be talking about a really important topic within the Asian American community, mental health. We're lucky enough to be able to bring on Laura, one of our dear friends, to speak with us. Laura is currently a graduate student studying clinical psychology. She's a future therapist and a researcher studying the effects of the different types of trauma and its impact on mental health. She's passionate about incorporating a culturally sensitive lens between the intersection of social justice and mental health. She's also one of my really good friends, so I'm really excited about this. Today, we're excited to um, kind of host this conversation with Laura and be able to dig a little bit deeper into what she what she kind of studies and more about mental health um, in the AAPI community. Um, before kicking off, Angie, do you want to introduce yourself? And then Laura, I, I'm sure that uh, this page definitely knows who you are, but maybe we can just reintroduce all of us because we have all these other people coming in as well. Sure. Yeah. Super happy to be here with you, Laura and Jay. I feel like I've heard so much about Laura from Jay. So this is actually the first time we are formally meeting on this live, which is so funny. But good to see everyone. I'm Angie. I am a co-host of Across the Lines along with Jay. I grew up in the Bay Area. So as you can imagine, Asian American identity has always been something that's been at the back of my mind for me. And I had just been so inspired by rewriting the narrative for Asian American professionals in American society. And we've been able to have so many incredible conversations with a lot of leaders in business about their personal professional lives, and also have some really vulnerable conversations about topics that aren't really talked about too much in the Asian American community, especially at work, mm-hmm. like mental health and what is our, our role in civic life. So today we're really excited to be covering at least one of them, you know, mental health here with Laura, who is our resident expert. So that's a bit about myself. And then Jay, Laura, teed off to you guys. Cool. Yeah, I can introduce myself. I know that there's some of you that know me here, some of you that don't know me here. Um, So my name is Laura. I am uh, the creator of um, the Mind Health Spot on Instagram. And uh, I think... Yeah, I can talk a little bit about why I started this page, but um, one of the reasons why I did start the page is because I am very passionate about mental health. So um, I am a current graduate student. I study clinical psychology, and I've basically dedicated my entire life to, um, yeah, understanding mental health, um, trying to support people in their mental health. And so um, really happy to be here. I think AAPI mental health is a topic that's really important, especially now, but always. Um, And, you know, Jay, we know each other from way back when. um, And Angie, I'm stoked to be here with you. Jay and Angie are doing such amazing things. Um, 
um, just amplifying Asian and uh, Pacific Islander voices on their podcast. So that's a little about me. I also um, co-moderate a wonderful page, a wonderful community. Um, called the Allied Minds Collective. And this is uh, just a whole bunch of, you know, mental health advocates, clinicians, um, people that um, are in the mental health sphere who want to support other people. Um, and we really think about the intersection of social justice and mental health. Uh, we believe that mental health cannot be separated from social justice issues. So that's a little bit about what we are and um, about who I am exciting before this too Laura and I were speaking about how we have a lot of conversations like this privately and just really stoked to be able to structure that conversation a little bit more but be able to share it with others and whether we're talking about identity culture um, workplace uh, mental health and, and and current event there's a lot there's a lot that we can cover and, and really excited to be able to do it here um, so in our podcast uh, we we usually uh, focus on a mix between personal and professional, um, background and upbringing. And so one way that we've uh, kind of fell into asking or like starting the podcast is by asking our guests uh, what their favorite dish was growing up. Um, Laura, what was your favorite dish growing up? Gosh, great question. You know, my mother does not cook. <laughs> she is like not a great chef. And I say that with like the most love. Um, and so she's out here listening. <laughs> with all the love. Yeah. Hi, mom. You don't cook. <laughs> um, but you know, one dish that really stands out to me, uh, my background is Chinese Taiwanese. So my mom is Chinese, my sorry, my mom is Taiwanese, my dad is Chinese. Um, and one dish I remember so distinctly, and I don't know why I loved this dish so much because it was so simple, is literally just fried rice with like little bits of carrots and peas and egg in it. And then like a thin layer of egg over top. I don't know if like other Asian folks, if you know, any of you have ever had this dish or if it's something that my mom literally just invented. <laughs> but you know, she would, yeah, she would put a, a layer of egg on top, like a thin layer. And then she would just like drown it with ketchup. And so it was fried rice, egg, ketchup. <laughs> and we would ketchup. like, yeah, <laughs> we would just mix it all together and eat it. And it was like the best thing ever. <laughs> um, that's awesome. That's, I, I love having egg on top of all of the food that I usually have um, kind of inappropriately. Um, uh, one, of, one, of my, one of my favorite dishes is not Asian American whatsoever, um, but it's like a pizza with an egg on it. There's this really famous spot in San Francisco that um, ha has that. And so- um, I was thinking about that earlier this morning. And so having egg on top of any dish, yeah. I think is, is awesome. Yeah, I approve. Laura approved egg <laughs> on everything. I have like three or four eggs a day. It's a little hardcore. <laughs> and like my friends As always tell me, you're going to die of like high cholesterol. And I'm like, well, I That's will a have good lived way to a happy die. life. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I had eggs every single day. Yeah. Um, so I'm honestly just going to jump right in, Laura. Um, one of the one of the themes that I think uh, you and I have spoken about a lot is in in the POC community of this idea of of just you know having our parents and having our upbringing and our culture tell us Angie's back yay oh my, oh my god 
Oh, shit. <laughs> Let's go. I don't know what magic y'all worked, but. Let's go. Let's go. Oh, my gosh. We're back. Perfect. Oh, my gosh. Okay. okay this is the last of the technical struggles. I was, <laughs> I I was getting, I, I was like putting on a smile on my face, but I was getting so anxious because like Angie <laughs> and I do everything together. <laughs> right. I was going right. to be nervous if she's gone. Um, cool. Yeah, okay, we're, we're back. Angie, we were just we we're just kind of kicking off like uh, the conversation here and um, just bringing up like kind of re bringing up a theme that uh, Laura and I have spoken about before, um, which is this idea in the POC community, whether it's our parents or our culture or, you know, our, our upbringing, uh, this idea of like, just to suck it up, and just mm -hmm. to pull yourself up by your bootstraps mm -hmm. and, and in the face of difficulties and adversity and just like shut up and like keep going like, can you can you talk about that? And, and can you share a little bit more about um, I guess your thoughts and maybe even your work of, of like how society has uh, implemented the stigma in, in ways that, that we can kind of overcome that. Yeah, that is a really great question. And that is something that I really resonate with, you know, something that I feel like I've navigated my entire life around. Um, this idea where um, I think for a lot of API people, and I mean, I want to preface this by saying that I am one Asian person. Um, I am, you know, not representative of the whole Asian race and certainly not the uh, Pacific Islander um, group as well. Uh, I think every person can also say that. So my experience, I'm kind of um, speaking from, yeah, my own personal experiences, the experiences that I've had, you know, interacting with clients, with friends, with people. Um, but everything that we talk about today is kind of um, framed around that. Um, I really think that when it comes to this idea of like pulling up your bootstraps, um, working hard, um, this idea is deeply embedded in a lot of people or a lot of Asian people's experiences um, from a really young age. You know, from a really young age, I think we get this these messages from society which um, come from all over the place. You know, they come from families, they come from like other people, they come from the media um, that tells us that in order to be successful, especially in the Western world. So when I'm talking about um, the Western world and uh, Asian people, I'm talking about Asian Americans or um, AAPI, uh, children of Americans, we're told that in order to be successful in the Western world, we do have to work really, really hard. We do have to kind of shut up and head down and, you know, just crunch time. And uh, I'm sure you've spoken about this in your podcast, Angie and Jay, um, and I've spoken about this on my page. I firmly believe that this comes from the idea, um, which some of you might be familiar with already, of the model minority myth. And I think it's really important to emphasize the myth part because the model minority idea is a myth. Um, and you can definitely visit my page as well just to get more information about this. But essentially what the minority myth tells Asian Americans, Asian Canadians, um, AAPI immigrants is that as this model minority, as the people that um, are, you know, like a aspire to be and other minorities should be like, um, we do have to work hard. We do have to uh, not have, you know, really any um, kind of 
I guess, dissenting opinions um, about our place in society. We do have to be in a position where, um, yeah, we're almost like the minority that other minorities want to be. And I think that's really dangerous as a message. Um, one of the, uh, I guess, one of the ideas of the model minority myth is that people who are of Asian descent um, are like more economically, more academically successful than other minorities. And so what happens is we internalize this message that the media tells us, that society tells us, that even our own family members tell us um, that, you know, the goal is to be economically and socially successful. And in order to do that, we need to climb the ladder and work our butts off to get there and not disagree with the people that are on top. Um, and the people that are on top, I believe that um, the way our society is structured, um, we live in a white supremacist society. And so when we're talking about the minority, yeah, the model minority myth, we're really talking about trying to get close to whiteness. Um, so yeah, I mean, I said a lot of words there, but I, I do believe that one thing that um, Asian folks are told constantly um, is that we have to work hard, is that we have to, you know, put our nose to the grindstone. And one of the things that um, is really important for us to recognize is that this is the lie that society tells us, you know, and I, I feel that our generation is moving slowly towards this awareness, moving slowly towards this dismantling of the model minority myth. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the, the awful thing about the model minority myth is that, to your point, Laura, it's so internalized through all our upbringing, right? And it's not only, only internalized, it's also so insidious in the ways that it shows up. And one of the ways that it shows up is, you know, in your practice and in, in your studies, you, you experience a lot of this, but in, in our mental health, right, as a community. Could you talk to us a bit more about that? You know, what are some of the things based on your conversation with your clients or your, your um, clinical studies that you've learned about this? Yeah, um, great question. So Xiao Jess in the comments um, said a really great point. So um, I hope you don't mind me reading it out loud here. She said, there is so much shame if we don't meet that stereotype. I think that's mm -hmm. definitely one of the um, really dangerous things about the minority model minority myth is that if we don't um, meet the extenuating pressures, the impossible pressures of this myth, then we, yeah, we have a lot of shame and that can manifest in things like depression. It can manifest in things like burnout where we, you know, we have shame, but we're constantly on this treadmill to try and work towards um, success and we burn ourselves out. It can be manifest in anxiety, um, so many different ways. I think another thing that, um, it's really important to note is that the model minority myth, it, I feel like it doesn't just involve the individual, but it involves all the systems that are around us in the individual. So, you know, it kind of bounces, um, 
or I guess like it, it becomes magnified when we exist in these systems. So for example, when we exist in our families, our families as a system, we think about how, you know, our families tell us that you need to work harder um, to get success. And they also believe that if they work harder, they'll get success. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that that's something that can be like really perpetuated and can really disrupt the family relationship as well mm -hmm. when there are things that come up for example um when a child talks to their parents and say like hey and says hey i don't want to you know do this career that i've been constantly told all my life um mm -hmm. that i'm supposed to do well what mm -hmm. happens right um and if we don't point out that uh the model minority myth is something that's active in these conversations i really do think that you know relationship problems within family members um, can also influence mental health there's so many ways that this can um, play out as well and so many ways that the model minority myth can really impact mental health i i think i spoke about this earlier i have a post um, in the ways that it doesn't just affect the individual but it also affects um, mental health care you know the other side where mm -hmm. how we're actually treating api individuals um within you know the mental health care field as clinicians as people that support um people who are dealing with mental health issues um that is i mean there's a huge impact right where we think that oh if someone is struggling you know and they're not hardworking, okay wow that's you know there's something wrong um mm -hmm. when really we actually need to normalize that maybe it's the systems that exist around us that have a problem with us um, yeah, I mean, those are just some of the few ways that it's so pervasive. Mm -hmm. and, and Laura, you mentioned that <clears throat> the model minority myth uh, ends up hurting folks that may want to follow an untraditional career path that mm -hmm. isn't just being a lawyer, a doctor, or something else that's that their parents have seen as successful and, and, and they think that the kids need to do something similar. Did you go yeah. through that yourself? Because there, I know I know there's not that many um, you've mentioned that there's not that many Asian Americans or Asian Canadians that are in um, the mental health space. So how did, how did you have that conversation with your own parents? Like, th were they supportive? Like, did they yeah. also just fit into this myth? Yeah. Oh gosh. This is like taking me back. Um, so one thing that I will mention is that in my, well, at least in my personal experience, I can't speak for everyone's families, but I've noticed that uh, mental health is so, so stigmatized um, in immigrant families. Um, you know, the fact that people can struggle with their mental health, a lot of uh, families might perceive that as, oh, you're doing something wrong, you're not working hard enough. Um, so that was something that was definitely true in my family. I'm happy to say that that's not so strong anymore. Hmm. But one of the things that was really hard for me, um, and it, it was such a journey as well, is uh, there was the suffering of mental illness in my family um, and seeing that and also not just the suffering itself but the layer around the suffering where there's a kind of a bubble of shame around it was mm -hmm. really really hard too so mm -hmm. one of the biggest reasons why I went into mental health care was because of my personal experience um, 
with mental illness in my family. Hmm. Um, I definitely didn't start out having this passion. So when I went to university, um, I wanted to do business. And then uh, long story short, I was like, that is definitely not for me. Like I am not a business minded person. So um, I went into education and, you know, during when I was kind of working towards my education credits, I actually took a psychology course. And that's when everything kind of clicked into place where I learned a lot about human behavior. I learned a lot about, you know, child psychology. I learned a lot about how, you know, our social systems and our biology affect us as humans. Um, and that's when real things really stacked up for me about, oh, okay, I can actually, you know, help people. At the time, I wanted to help children. Um, and uh, it kind of evolved into helping adults and helping people of all ages. But I realized that I wanted a different future for families that were um, similar to me, that had similar um, experiences to me. But I will say that it was incredibly tough to get my family to wrap their heads around the fact that, um, you know, this is a, a profession that I chose. And over the years, I have had to have have had to engage in hard conversations with them. And I still get comments from my family, you know, when I speak about uh, the care that I do. Sometimes I'll mention, oh, I have a client um, and they'll make comments like, oh, you know, you're looking or you're, uh, you're, you know, like you have a session with like the crazy person mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. it's, it's comments like that, which are, um, as Angie mentioned, insidious, um, mm -hmm. but with kind of gentle education and empathy, I've really learned to, um, yeah, be able to monitor my energy so I can engage in those conversations in a way where there's somewhat of a mutual understanding and then accepting the fact that sometimes there won't be, you know, we mm -hmm. can try our best, we can educate our families, we can really speak our truth. And that's going to feel really hard, especially if you choose a career um, where your family doesn't approve of and your family is so so important to me and my family is so so important to me um, but knowing where to kind of straddle the line between like okay this is my boundary like I know my truth I know what's important to me um, and whether or not they accept that this is what I'm going with and then maybe choosing moments where you do have the capacity to engage in those conversations and I've learned this kind of the hard way but luckily, um, I will say this, not every single family is like mine. And a lot of my family members have demonstrated such immense support and acceptance over the years, but it, it wasn't easy. For sure. And building off of what you're saying there, Laura, around how your family responded to you saying that you had a client and really just like negative disparaging mm -hmm. way, right? Which must've been really discouraging. Mm -hmm. Uh, that that just sounds so difficult. And it, it's making me think of just the fact that vocabulary matters so much. And in mm -hmm. Chinese culture, at least I'm thinking about, you know, the discourse and vocabulary around mental health. I actually don't think there's like a, mm -hmm. a positive set of phrases or associations with mental health. Like everything mm -hmm. you think of is like very pathologized, yeah. right. Where it's almost like 
oh, you have a disease of the mind, basically, is like what it translates into, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, if you don't have that vocabulary, how can you even begin to express it in a, in a positive way? So that was yeah. one thing one, one thing that, that made me think of. And the other is, um, I'm hearing a lot from you, this, this theme of shame, right, in Asian American culture, and also how it can pervade into mental health. Could you tell us a bit more about that, about this idea of shame, how it could prevent us from seeking the kind of care that we need and how we as a community can do a lot to, I think this is your phrase actually that I really like, to redefine resilience, to break through some of that shame and and make Mm -hmm. this more accessible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Big topic. I think, you know, embedded under a lot of mental health issues is this sense of shame. So there's stigma kind of on a holistic level um, where a lot of people do experience a lot of stigma about suffering. And that stigma is so magnified in the AAPI community. Um, And so when we think about, you know, this brings me back to the model minority myth conversation. Um, When we think about the fact that people have to work hard, people have to, you know, like stay silent, pull up their bootstraps so that they can be successful in life. What we're actually telling people is that if you suffer, and if you, you know, have a mental health issue, that means that you're not working hard enough. And that means that you're maybe being lazy, or that means that maybe you're broken in some way. Um, Mm -hmm. And I really hear that in a lot of um, minority populations, not just AAPI, but a lot of different um, minority populations. So Mm -hmm. yes, I think shame is a huge, huge topic, because I mean, that's the last thing that someone who's really struggling needs is, you know, they're struggling with their mental health. And then they're also struggling with the idea that they're struggling with their mental health. Yeah. You know, it's like a double whammy. So how can we start to break those chains, right? How can we really start to um, take away some of that shame Mm -hmm. and really treat the the mental health issue and really treat the human um, and maybe you know, I love what you said about language, Angie, because I think language matters here where we, um, where we tell people like, it's really not your fault that you're struggling. You know, it is the systems around us. Sometimes, you know, biological factors come into play, um, but it really doesn't mean that you're broken, that you're lazy, that you're, you know, doing something wrong, that you're not meeting um, these super unrealistic expectations that society sets for us. Um, And, you know, taking away some of that shame, because once we start taking away some of that shame, we can start digging and digging and digging um, to try and reach people and and to kind of connect um, human to human, right? I think Hmm. maybe we're not all strained, or maybe we're not all familiar personally with mental health issues, um, but everyone experiences shame you know, in all sorts of different um, scenarios. So yeah, how can we really um, think about that shame in a way where, as you said, we can redefine resilience. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm reading some of the comments uh, that are coming in as well, which are really powerful. Um, Pooja Kat uh, saying that you're from India, the whole stigma around um, surrounding mental health, especially from the media family, um, there's definitely a stigma. And then it kind of comes down to helping helping your family members unlearn certain ideas and then and learn new ones. 
Um, I totally resonate with that, but it, it like on Laura's point, there's the, the mental health, um, issues and stigma. And then there's the whole stigma around mm-hmm. the stigma. And there's <laughs> like, in my mind, I'm picturing like, there's like a ball of Medi- just stigma. Yeah, exactly. Cause you're, you're yeah. feeling bad about feeling bad. And, and that, that just drives you down just a total, like a, a road that you don't want to be. And you'd rather just open up about these things, talk about them, share mm-hmm. with, share with your loved ones, share with your family, um, share with like friends and, and like whomever to be able to kind of unpack some of those things instead of just feeling more shame about the shame and, and feeling more stress about the stress. Um, yeah. So yeah. I, I, I really resonated with that point. Yeah, absolutely. And one thing that I wanted to add as well, and um, again, goes back to the model minority myth is um, it's really isolating to have so much shame. It can feel really, really lonely to think that, you know, you're weak and something's wrong with you. And maybe you're the only person that's experiencing this. Um, I think shame takes away our power to connect with other people. Um, And this is where stigma, and there's a lot of research about um, AAPI mental health and how um, help seeking is really low in some of our communities because of this shame, right? Because we're shamed to go to therapy. You know, the comment that my family member made about Mm -hmm. seeing crazy people, um, my clients, that is real and that's really isolating. And so it stops people from accessing help. It stops people from, as I was talking about before, connecting vulnerability or vulnerably <laughs> um, with other people. Um, it, it also, yeah, it stops people from even talking to their friends, talking to their family members. Laura, one thing that I, I think about a lot is, you know, it, it's, it's hard enough to be able to have these types of conversations with people that are close to you and people that know you and, and love you. Even, even some people may have difficulties with that. A lot of people have difficulties with that. Let's say you overcome that piece and you're able to connect with your family members about this. You're, you're talking to really close friends about this. Um, but then, then you go into the workplace and, and, and you're there for most of the, most of the day and, and whether it's remote or not, whatever it is, but you're, amongst a different group of people that may not actually know a lot of the things that you're going through and they may not be fully aware or frankly not care as much as as your family or friends do um but one thing that we angie and i keep coming back to in, in the in our, in our podcast is this idea that your personal and professional are not like two different things yeah. they're, the, they're the same thing like mm-hmm. your, your personal is the foundation for whomever you are as a professional do you have any thoughts do you have any thoughts on okay there's the whole issue of being able to open up about your mental health to people that are close to you, but what happens in, in a professional setting? Um, yeah. have, have you, have you put any time thinking about that or, um, spoken to, spoken to patients about that? Like, I'd be curious to see like the different nuances and if there is a way to be able to kind of, um, find the combination there where you can be open in both settings. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Great question. One thing that, um, I really think is important, uh, not just in professional settings, but in any setting, is you feeling safe in that moment to talk about some of your vulnerabilities. And I think, you know, this goes back to our um, conversation about individual pathology versus kind of um, having society take responsibility. I think that it is up to all of us including me to make it safe Mm -hmm. for other people to disclose, you know? So obviously 
um, it would be great if everyone from an individual standpoint could go out and, and talk vulnerably about their mental health. But we know through experience that a lot of um, there are certain situations where you just don't feel safe. I think I I read in the comments that, um, you know, hearing family make judgmental comments about people who have mental illness just makes them feel like that it's not safe to talk about mental health and mental illness. And I think that's so, so true. Um, so that's kind of a preface that I want to say is that it's up to each of us to make it comfortable for other people to talk about mental health. Um, I also see this, especially with um, the AAPI population, and especially just for me personally, is that um, and gosh, I think I, I thought about this in the context also of um, one of my good friends um, who's on Instagram as Brown Girl Therapy. I saw her pop in a while ago. I don't know if she's um, there anymore. But uh, one post that I really resonate with and I read it and I was like, wow, this is so me, is that I think for me, I've always been told that I need to um, respect authority and I need mm. to uh, pay respect to my elders and you know like part of that respect is not talking back um, maybe just um, obeying my elders which I think is is really important too but I see how that can translate into the workplace where we're it's almost like a one directional relationship between a supervisor and an employee, right? Where you're like, okay, I need to do everything that my supervisor is telling me because that's how I've been ingrained and socialized um, as a, you know, for me, a Chinese person. Um, and also I can't let the supervisor know that I'm struggling because I don't want them to feel like I'm lesser than, or I don't want them to see me as lesser than. Um, and I think, yeah, you know, it, it's something that we kind of carry from the model minority myth, we carry from the messages that our families tell us, something that for me required a lot of inner work to be able to say, um, hey, like, I'm struggling, I really respect you, you have a lot of power over me. And also, this is what's going on. Um, and I think that is a huge act of courage, huge. Mm -hmm. Laura, you mentioned uh, so many powerful uh, messages there. One that really stood out to me um, was the nuance between, I'm trying to put these two ideas together because, and I haven't honestly thought about this before, but the nuance between being first to be vulnerable or being first to open up about your mental health. Mm. Let's say in this case, it's just like the, the broader theme of just opening up and being vulnerable first to create the space for others to do so. And then how that relates to, this uh, classical like Asian American ide ideology of not speaking up to elders and then yeah. how that translates to just maybe not even speaking up at all and not really having your voice or finding a voice. I don't know if that's <laughs> the first time I've like tried to connect those two different ideologies together of maybe yeah. that's why that that's another reason why it might be difficult to even open up in the first place because you're, you're not necessarily used to uh, speaking up at all, um, especially growing up, especially with your family members and, and your parents. Um, and, and, and so like uh, to kind of like to, to double click on that point too, like being open and being vulnerable definitely helps to create the space for others to also open up and, and also um, 
to also feel safe. Um, I mean, hopefully like this, this room is something similar to that as well. And um, one thing, one thing that um, I see at work um, that is really beneficial uh, is that they've created the space for things like mindfulness and, and opening up about um, like different cultural identities. And, and, and they kind of went it, like out of their way to open up the space for other people to join it. Um, and also they really support um, people to do the same. So if someone is mm-hmm. coming out and, and, and saying, hey, I want to start this program. I want to talk about Asian American identity at work. They'll say, yeah, you yeah. should do that. And like, here's some resources to do so. Um, yeah. Because paradoxically, like investing in employees and, and the people that you work with uh, for their entire like personal mental health ends up impacting them better. They, they like the company more. They want to stay a little bit longer. Um, mm-hmm. So if anybody's listening that like is in that leadership position or like at a company like that, like I encourage you to, to look into um, creating a space and, and, and being open and being vulnerable yourself first. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I love that your company does that. And I also love the fact that you brought in creating a space and actually being intentional about it. Because it's so easy in our day to day to just like, go to work, do work stuff, go home, we're almost like on autopilot. And you know, our priorities, I don't start the day. I mean, I sometimes do because I'm in the mental health space. But I feel like most people don't start the day being like, today, I'm going to normalize mental health at work, you know. Um, So I think having those reminders and constantly telling ourselves, especially when we are in leadership or mentorship positions, um, to, to disclose our struggles, you know, to people that are, um, that we're mentoring, or to even in our everyday interactions, treat people with empathy, you know, give them time off, not even just as a, oh, I see you struggling, I'm going to do that. But as like a preventative measure, Mm -hmm. um, I think it's really important. So it really feeds into like our every kind of interaction and our every layer of, of things at work. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely. And echoing Jay, very grateful that we do operate in a workplace that really fosters a lot of this conversation. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we can do this right now, literally, like mm-hmm. we've left work a bit early to get this kicked <laughs> off and literally mm-hmm. no problems, right? It's just yeah. a lot to be grateful for there. Mm-hmm. And awesome. Laura, I want to shift a bit, you know, from, from the workplace for Jay and I, which is a very different workplace than the workplace Mm -hmm. for you. And I want to focus on your workplace for a bit. And especially some of the, how do I say this? Like the the paradigms of care and research and and how theories and frameworks should be applied to Mm -hmm. mental health treatment. And Mm -hmm. sometimes how they can be a bit Western centric, Mm -hmm. right? And I know we started off this conversation talking about a lot of the sometimes drawbacks of a you know some 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 facets of eastern culture and how that could inhibit us from seeking mental health or being mentally healthy but there are also some merits right like for example oh i'm sorry my dog is getting very excited <laughs> ollie is the cutest uh, oh, man. everybody on instagram look up the goodest boy ollie. <laughs> goodest I think. boy ollie <laughs> Anyway, well, I, I was gonna make some kind of like Pavlov joke, but I, I guess it's not, it's not fitting here. But <laughs> um, anyway, I was saying, so one of the merits of Eastern culture is collectiveness, right? And that that sense of community and family, and that's just one of the benefits I can think of. 
So I'm curious for you, Laura, you know, coming from an Asian American background and working in this very like Western dominated space of mental health, what are some ways in which you think mental health frameworks and theory and just practice can be augmented a bit, right, to better support Asian Americans and also incorporate some of these Eastern values as well? Okay, yeah. Big question. So yeah. much. Like, Let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here is my 20 page paper about this topic, because I have so many thoughts, so many. Um, I think the first thing is that, yes, the field of psychology and my biggest issue with what I study clinical psychology is that it concentrates on the individual, um, which is a plus and a minus, right? But in this context, we're talking about some of the negatives of that. So when we concentrate on the individual and we think about the individual independent of everything that exists around them, we're missing a lot of crucial information. We're missing how this person um, is embedded in like a societal context. We're missing, um, you know, how are they perceived in their community? Just a lot of crucial information, family systems, you know, relationships, whatnot. And I think this is the issue you know, with, with therapy as well is even though I believe strongly in therapy and the therapeutic relationship, it's a one-on-one -on -one, I see you and your problems and how are we going to kind of address these problems in you, right? Mm. Rather than kind of targeting the, the systems or the people that are around the individual. Um, so that's the first issue I have. The second issue I think you lightly kind of alluded to is that yes, um, the field of mental health care, at least in my country, Canada, and in many Western nations, is built on white Western theorists. Um, we call the founders of psychology or the fathers of psychology. Um, and you look through and you realize that these are like, you know, my reading list is like all old white men mm -hmm. who have these theories and these experiences you can't not take in your own experience when you're um, thinking about psychology these experiences of being old white men mm -hmm. right and so when they're trying to apply these theories about hu the human condition or about people in general the lens that they're seeing that through needs to be kind of yeah, challenged and criticized because it doesn't always apply, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then we we can think about it. The third thing is to think about it from like a research standpoint. So a lot of research is lacking. Um, there's more these days, which is awesome. There's a paradigm shift happening in the mental health space, but there's a lot of research that's lacking with um, yeah, like minority populations and some of the some of the issues and some of the complicated um, mental health um, related topics that that we encounter. Mm -hmm. um, and when there is research on these minority populations, we're lumped in all together, yeah. you know, as like, okay, minorities face this, or even API um, populations face mm -hmm. this, where mm -hmm. 
there is so much diversity within these populations, not just with, you know, ethnic groups, but within like different um, cities, different, um, you know, people who um, have moved and immigrated versus people who haven't. And so there's there's really differences there that um, research again is trying to address, but there's huge gaps. And then the last thing that I wanna address here is that there is um, a lack of representation as Jay mentioned in the mental health space. Again, I'm seeing more and more improvement, but even when I was studying, there were very few people that I knew that were Asian that were also pursuing a mental health profession. And mm. so you can, I think, what's the saying? Like, you can only become what you see. Mm -hmm. And I don't want that to be exclusive. You know, obviously you can become more than what you see, but it's much harder to become what you see. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things are interlayered because if there's more representation in research, if there's more representation in mental health care, then that means clinicians can kind of use their, their own experience to inform mental health care and deliver um, culturally, relevant and culturally um, humble care to people. Um, there's more research generated on these populations because they kind of know what we need to focus on. Um, mm. So these things have a huge mm. trickle down effect and mm -hmm. you know, none of these things are independently um, operating, they're all connected. Mm -hmm. That's such a that's such a beautiful point and sad point, but uh, <laughs> interesting of how if you don't have role models to look up to from people that are in your background, you may not mm -hmm. want to pursue a path yourself. And if you're not pursuing the path yourself, then you won't have people like you that want to do research on that same community. And if you don't have research in that yeah. same community, then it's only going to continue to hurt folks within the community with their own mental health. And so that, that that's such a yeah. interesting, like it's such an interesting kind of um, flywheel. Um, and if you can yeah. get more people there, like people like yourself, like you're, you're going to be the role model of someone that is in college or in high school, like thinking that they want to become a future therapist and be like, hey, like it, Laura's amazing, but like if she can do it, then I can do it. And then you have more people that are like you that can come in, that can educate others. Um, and it kind of gets the flywheel going the other way. Um, yeah. that, it's, a, it's a really great point. Um, you know, with that point, uh, I think we're going to wrap here. Um, Laura, was, it was awesome bringing you on and, or us coming on to your <laughs> Instagram page. Thank you for having <laughs> us. Um, for, those, for those that are, that are still in the room, um, check us out at the Across the Lines um, across lines podcast instagram page and keto if you can give a quick little plug in the comments um we have conversations very similar to this very personal very vulnerable um we talk about identity and culture and work and um with all kinds of amazing individuals um and so follow us along like provide any feedback comments um but laura thank you so much for bringing like bringing bringing the space for us to even join you um this has been a ton of fun thank you laura yeah, I echo that. It's been such a privilege. Yeah. And I see some comments here as well. Um, if anyone wants to reach out and chat further about these things. Um, yeah, just let me know. Pop me a message. Um, I'm happy to chat about uh, any of these topics. Awesome. All right. Thank Thanks you. Um, and fun. yeah, have a good evening. Bye, guys. Okay. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning into Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. 
If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it. And as always, you can head over to acrossthelinespodcast.com to learn more about the show, as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time. Thank you.